The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to have these few minutes together this week to sit together as your people, sitting under your word, asking that you would teach us and direct us as your people into the life that you offer to us, into the fullness of life in your kingdom, especially as we now sit with these themes of identity and of the, the people you have made us to be. We ask that you would help us to look to you for our hope, look to you for our purpose, to you for our truest identity, and set us free from the lies that we believe and that we take into ourselves. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, before we dive into our text, I just want to remind you of something we said last week. The big announcement for us on the north side is that shifts are coming in just a few weeks' time. On June 28th, we will be moving away from these pre-recorded services to a live-streamed service where we meet at Rome on the north side in Dunwoody. And yet, uh, this will not be a service that you attend. There will be about three to five of us helping to lead this service in person, and we will live stream it from 9 to 9.45 a.m. However, we do want you to come and receive communion for us to begin and resume that weekly sacramental life together. And so from 10 a.m. to 10.30, we will have a station set up at the entryway doors of Rome where you can come and receive communion. We will serve it to you observing social distancing and all the sanitation requirements that are asked of us in this time of pandemic, uh, but would really encourage you to do so, to join us from 9 a.m. to 9.45 for the service that we will live stream, and then to come and receive communion uh, with your family, with your children. Everyone's invited to come and receive during that 30-minute window. And so keep an eye out for our Sunday and Wednesday emails that will have more details. And again, like I said last week, if you have any questions, reach out to me and I'd love to talk through those with you. 
So we are now into our second week of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course. I've loved walking through this, sitting with this book by Pete Scazzaro. I hope you've been able to pick it up and begin reading it and read along with us. Today, we're talking about the themes of discovering and finding your true self the person that God has made you to be. And rather than thinking that's a modern or a novel invention, I love how Scazzaro roots that idea in the history of the church. He opens this section, he opens this chapter with multiple quotes of Christians who've gone before us, who've seen the value in this pursuit. Here's two that I love. St. Augustine says, grant Lord that I may know myself, that I may know thee. St. Teresa of Avila says, Almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of, of self-knowledge, stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And there's so much good in this chapter. I'd recommend you read the whole thing. He talks about just the importance of our emotions, that we need to tend to those. The fact that God is a God who feels. God has emotions. And what does that then mean for us as people who are made in his image? And yet he talks about the ways we deny that. And when we do, we take on other sources of identity. We say our performance gives us identity. Our possessions gives us our identity. Our popularity gives us our identity. And it does in a very real way. That is true. And yet it, when we take that on and believe that to be true, it is for our own harm. He puts it this way. I love this on page 40. The vast majority of us, the vast majority of us, go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations of us. I'm sure you do not have to think long or hard to think of ways you've done that in your own life, maybe in really big, significant ways, maybe in more subtle ways that are still a part of your story and who you are. I, I was just thinking a minute ago, this is true for me because of my height. I've been as tall as I am now since I was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, I was six foot five. I could barely walk. I could barely put one foot in front of the other. And yet the question I was asked my entire life, even to this day, though less and less because I look less and less athletic, the question was, do you play basketball? Do you play basketball? And it was such a given, such an assumption that someone of my build would play basketball that I played from the youngest of ages. My parents would tell stories of other parents literally asking to see birth certificates to, they somehow thought I'd, they had uh, worked the system and like worked me into a younger age group because I was so much bigger than all the other kids. So I played basketball all growing up. And yet as I became an adult and got into my adult life, if I'm honest with you, I realized I don't really like basketball. I mean, I enjoyed playing it. I would enjoy a pickup game now, but I don't follow basketball. I don't love the game. I don't track it in any significant way. It doesn't shape who I am now. And yet that was an expectation placed on me. As an adult, I've come to love soccer. Soccer is absolutely my favorite sport, without question, by a mile. And yet you don't see many six foot five soccer players. I did not have and do not have the genetic makeup to play soccer. There's a few out there. There's a few really tall professional soccer players and I love them with all my heart. And yet they are few and far between. And yet I've come to realize even in something as silly as sports, that's an example of ways in which expectations are placed on us 
And we believe them. We begin to think that's a part of who I am because others have said that is who I'm meant to be. We do this in other ways, maybe more significant, more serious ways. We do it in our relationships. We receive expectations from those closest to us, our closest relatives and family, if you're married from your spouse. And we also put those expectations on those we love. Often without meaning to, we do this. And part of the the way we grow in this as Christians in our spiritual life is to learn to say, how do I help someone else become who they are meant to be? Not who I want them to be, but who they are meant to be. In my own marriage, it took me years to realize ways in which I was doing this. I thought that a good marriage meant I would go and find out who I'm meant to be and my wife would go and figure out who she's meant to be and we both would find our way to the same place and it would be great. And yet I missed the ways in which my own quote unquote self-discovery was actually suppressing and silencing the space my wife needed to be who she was meant to be. I was putting expectations on her without even realizing it, without even tending to that or intending to. And so just recently, does it feel like we've entered a new chapter or a new season of life where we're finally beginning to realize what it means uh, to live for the good of the other while still becoming who we're meant to be? And I think maybe at this point, it's important to clarify this. I've, just to be candid, I've, I've often really bristled or, or resisted this idea of self-discovery or, or self-care. It feels a bit like navel-gazing. It feels indulgent, like going to a day spa or something, like this modern discovery where we treat ourselves through a little self-care, a little self-discovery. And it's the kind of thing, if you have the margin, if you have the time or the luxury to tend to that, then that's good for you. But for the rest of us out here in the real world, in normal life, that's just not a thing that we do. I would just say this, I've increasingly come to realize that that's not true and it's actually not helpful. We need to tend to who we are in Christ, to tend to our identity, even maybe especially in times of confusion, in times of crisis and hardship. These are difficult and confusing days. This is the very reason we did not cancel this emotionally healthy spirituality series when the pandemic hit, when George Floyd was murdered, when we find ourselves in the confusion and the unrest of this present moment. We press into these themes because we need them now more than ever. They're not unrelated themes. Please hear me on that. This is not an unrelated sidebar conversation. You tending to who you are in Christ, who God has made you to be, is precisely the way that you and I are able to enter into the chaos and the brokenness of this world. And if we can't tend to that part of our life, we may never actually enter in We may never actually be people who can encounter God in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion. And if we think the only times we meet him is when it feels calm and under control, we may miss him entirely. I think God is inviting you and me to have this clarity of our identity that helps us remain connected to people, remain connected to places that stretch us and make us feel vulnerable and exposed, yet fully clear at the same time on who we are, on who we are meant to be. And really that's the key phrase of this chapter, of this section. It's this theme of differentiation, differentiation. That's a big word. 
Yet it's a word that you may have heard from time to time. We use it here at Trinity often. It comes from family systems theory. A man named Edwin Freeman used this quite a lot in his writing, but I love how Pete Scazzaro defines it. He says, differentiation involves the ability to hold on to who you are and who you are not to hold on to who you are and who you are not. And so a self-differentiated person is someone simply who's clear on who they are, but also clear on who they're not, where they end and where another begins. And this, if we can do this, it allows us, here's another really key important phrase, it allows us to live as non-anxious people, to live and be a non-anxious presence in the world. Because taking on someone else's identity for ourselves is a primary source of anxiety. It is anxious and a source of anxiety. It makes us anxious people when we take their identities on, when we say that I have to manage their expectations of me. I think we, we run from anxiety. We run from difficult situations and our most natural inclination is simply to run and say, I, I can't live in that kind of uh, ambiguity. I can't live with that kind of constant pressure or tension. And yet if you're differentiated and non-anxious, you can stay in an anxious environment without it becoming your anxiety. You can press into hard and chaotic and difficult places and you can resist that temptation to run away, resist that inclination to simply flee. And we see that throughout the Bible, beautiful examples of people who live this non-anxious way of being. And when they do, they change the world. When they do, they enter into chaos and speak life instead of adding to the brokenness or instead of running away and avoiding it because it's hard. Jesus most clearly is the one who does this. We see this in Jesus. He never for a minute lacks the clarity of identity, the clarity of mission that is given to him from the Father. And yet, because he has that clarity, he's able to enter into the most chaotic of places. He spends the whole of his life surrounded by outcasts and prostitutes and beggars. And yet he brings life into those places as the Son of God. Another place we see this powerfully and beautifully in our reading today, is King David. David as a forerunner of Jesus, we could say, one who points us to Jesus. In 1 Samuel, we see David really in a profound way exhibiting this way of being, this non-anxious, differentiated self. This is the David who in Psalm 31 says, my times are in your hands, O Lord. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. He was a differentiated person in that Psalm, someone who knew that he was surrounded on every side and yet he was held in the hand of the Lord. And so he was at peace. And yet we see it profoundly in David's life in another place today in 1 Samuel. This is the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, it is the all-time gold standard of Sunday school lessons. Although we never actually got to the very end. This is a bit of a rabbit trail. But I always thought, I grew up thinking truly that that was just almost a miraculous stone because it hit him right in the forehead and it killed him just like that. 
And I thought that because we never actually read to the end where the stone stuns the giant and he falls and then David goes and takes his sword and cuts his head off. That, that's not the stuff. That is not a gold standard of Sunday school. We left that bit out, but that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I just wanted to say it. So there are lessons that are the stuff of Sunday school when it comes to this story. Uh, and you've heard many of them, the ways in which you read this story and say, this teaches us how to face the giants in our lives. This teaches us that God is going to fight for me, that God will deliver me from evil, deliver me from impossible odds. And all of those are good and true lessons, yet I never was taught a story or a lesson surrounding Saul's armor. Saul's armor was entirely passed over whenever this was taught growing up and even really into adulthood. Only in the last couple of years have I set with and been taught the significance of Saul's armor. Here's what it says in the text. In verse 38, we see this. After David tells Saul about all the ways God's protected him, given him strength in the past to kill lions and kill bears and the way that God will do the same for him again now as he faces Goliath, verse 38 says this, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. So even though David has just told Saul all the ways that God in the past has provided for him, the ways that he's given him strength to overcome his enemies, well, well-meaning, well-meaning Saul assumes that he still has to add to this. And the way he adds to this is by giving David his own armor. And it's not just that. What he's doing is he's saying, instead of hearing you and trusting that you can lead and succeed, in the ways that God has made you uniquely to be you, he says, I'm going to turn you into a version of myself. That's what Saul's actually doing, consciously or subconsciously. He's saying, I'm going to turn you into a version of myself. My very first boss out of college used to say this over and over again, and I'll never forget it. He said, we tend to see others as flawed versions of ourselves. We tend to see others as flawed versions of ourselves. And if we give in to that tendency, what we then do is we go all throughout life, all around, and when we see others, we try and impose ourselves on them. Because we think their perceived flaws, we can make them up by giving them a little bit of ourselves, by helping them see the world the way that we see it, instead of stopping taking the seat of humility and saying, how can I learn to see the world through your eyes, to see the goodness of living life the way that you live it, the way that God has invited you to live life. So what happens then? What happens when David tries to become someone and something that he's not? Verse 39, David strapped Saul's sword over the armor and he tried in vain to walk for he was not used to them. He tries. He's a good, obedient servant of the king. He tries, but he quickly realizes he's not going to get very far pretending to be something that he is not. And what he does in so doing is actually runs the risk of denying who God has made him to be. So what does he do? He removes them. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. This is the question to ask this week. Ask yourself this question. 
Where am I wearing Saul's armor? Where am I wearing Saul's armor? What expectations of myself or of my family or of my own identity have I received from others? Even well-meaning, loving people, how have I received it from others and then therefore taken on a burden upon myself that I was never meant to bear? Maybe you have spent years of your life with a version of Saul's sword strapped over your armor and you are simply worn out from trying to walk, worn out from carrying a burden and an armor that you are never meant to carry. Simply put, don't wear Saul's armor. That is the takeaway from this reading and our second chapter in our study this week. Don't wear Saul's armor and begin to tend to and intentionally look for the ways that maybe you have taken on Saul's armor, taken on identities and the anxiety that comes with those identities, the ways you've taken it on in your life. And in this book, Scazzaro gives us several practical ways we can tend to that and begin to identify them. I wanna point out just one because this is very familiar to many of us at Trinity, but to invite you into it, it's simply the prayer of examine, this Ignatian practice of praying a daily prayer of examine. This is what what is called consolation and desolation, tending to, in prayer, the places in your life where you're having consolation and where you're experiencing desolation. Scazzaro defines those words this way. He says, consolation is those interior movements and feelings that bring life, joy, peace, and the fruit of the spirit. On the other hand, desolation is that which brings us death, inner turmoil, disquiet, and spiritual turbulence. If you are feeling those things, those are maybe signs, I propose this, maybe those are signs that in your life you have taken on Saul's armor in some way. And so the beauty of this prayer, the simplicity of this prayer is that you can pray this your whole life, anywhere, any season. You can begin to pray these prayers of consolation and desolation. You can do this as a family. If you have children at home, you can pray these prayers with them. I do this most days with my family. My wife and I, when we sit at the dinner table, we more often than not do a version of this. Now we don't call it consolation and desolation. I don't say to my six-year-old, Charlie, where are you experiencing spiritual turbulence in your life? Where are you feeling desolate in your spiritual journey? No, I, I don't say that at all. But we do talk about highs and lows. As we're eating our meal, most of the time we say, Tell me about your day. Where today did you have a high or where did you have a low? Uh, Sometimes we'll say, tell me something interesting about your day. Really simple questions, simple ways to help our children to begin to be reflective and to think about how they encountered God, how they encountered others throughout that day. And so maybe this week, that's something simple you can do with your spouse, with your friends, if you share a meal, with your kids, if you have children. Just say, where today did you have a high? Where did you have a low? Where did you encounter both the goodness and the joy of God, but also a sense of sorrow, a sense of grief or death in some way in your own life? That's a very practical way that you can live into these themes today. And so I I hope this conversation has been a blessing to you this week. I hope it gives you something that you can sit with and take into the next few days as we walk through this coming week. And I pray that God will be with us, that his spirit will guide us as we continue this summer to tend to emotional health, to this emotionally healthy spirituality.
So now as we close, would you join me as we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week. Let us now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we close, we sing together one last time.